151 combat missions, 21 hard kills on surface-to-air missile sites, four distinguished flying crosses with valor, and one purple heart. I'm Colonel Dan Hampton. I went by two dogs. I was an F-16 fighter pilot for 20 years. I'm sitting here at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, home of the fighter pilot. Dan Hampton is the most lethal F-16 wild weasel in American history. Now this true hero of the skies tells his story. It's, it's a solitary way to go to war. You're never out there alone because you always fly with wingmen and other flights, but unlike, uh, say, a platoon of Army soldiers, I'm alone in the cockpit, usually three to four to 500 miles behind enemy lines. I flew all uh, blocks and models of the F-16. Primarily, though, I was an F-16 Block 50 CJ, which is a wild weasel pilot. And our job in life was to go kill surface-to-air missile systems and anti-aircraft guns that were targeting aircraft. Dan lived on the edge, but there was always one thing for sure when we all got in the van to go fly. You could see it in the faces of individuals. Some guys looked very nervous, some guys looked absolutely petrified, some guys were looking at their pictures of their wives, and I think Dan was looking for the next SAM site to take out. It's really hard in some ways to express the way I feel about this airplane because it took me through so many bad situations, and I always came back relatively in one piece, and I will never be able to look at one or think about one without feeling a profound gratitude for being able to fly it and to have it as part of my life for 20 years. Today on the Buckeye Show, Dan Hampton, Viper Pilot. Brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash bookguys and get a free book just for signing up for one month trial. This is the Book Guys Show, episode 56. We are back, gentlemen, and as joined as always, my name is Paul Alves, always joined by a great panel of book lovers. And you may have heard some dings there in the beginning, Professor Allen. <laughs> Sir Jimmy picks the best time to, to clock out of our go-to meeting. <laughs> I think a tree, uh, tree fell on his internet line or something. He'll be back soon. <laughs> so uh, I am joined, of course, as always. Professor Allen joins us. How you doing, Professor? Good, good, good. Looking forward to uh, chatting with uh, with Dan here. I think we all are. I think, uh, I think we've all uh, read Dan's book. Dan is, of course, here as well, joining us. Mr. Dan Hampton, happily retired, he said. <laughs> How are you, Dan? I'm doing fine, thanks. And again, thanks for the invitation. Uh, great to have you on, Dan. Of course, uh, we're going to be talking today about your book, Viper Pilot. And uh, we all enjoyed it, and we really want to chat with you. But usually we start off the show by uh, talking to each other about uh, uh, what's on our Kindles, what's on our nightstands, 
We like to include our guests, of course, in that. Uh, I, of course, have been reading Viper Pilot all week long. Uh, I think my next book, I don't have one yet. Maybe we'll decide during the show what I'm going to read next. We'll take a poll. <laughs> what have you been up to, uh, up, Professor Allen? I finished up Viper Pilot today, and uh, I would have been in trouble if we'd done this interview as scheduled a few days ago, but finished it up today, did my other uh, book guy's homework and finished up Ender Shadow uh, yesterday. So I think next I'm going, I've done some, uh, we've done some, we've done some sci-fi and some nonfiction. So I think I'm going to go fantasy next time, something Anne McCaffrey or something like that. Is, I think next on my, uh, next on my iPod. Oh, looking forward to hearing about it. Uh, I think I'm going to be reading something on, just because iBooks was updated today, I'm going to read a book on iBooks just so I can give my review of the, uh, the software update as well. So kind of kill two birds with one stone. Uh, it seems like Sir Jimmy is coming back. Let's ask Dan. Dan, have you been reading anything lately? Anything on your shelf, or are you just busy promoting Viper Pilot? Well, I'm busy doing that, and I actually have a deadline in a week and a half for a fiction book that's coming out in March. So I think my time for reading for fun is a bit curtailed at the moment. A man of many talents. A fiction book as well. Well, you'll have to tell us all about that as well. And uh, Sir Jimmy, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. So glad to be here. Been really looking forward to talking to Dan Hampton. Uh, the first real paper book that I have read in eight years, and I blew through it. Good to be here. I, I know, Sir Jimmy, you're excited to talk to a guest when you ask me to pull out uh, you know, uh, news clips from uh, 2001. So. Yeah, we're going way back in this. <laughs> this is very relevant. Very relevant. So let's get right into it. I don't think I've ever done this, and you guys watching me on the GoToMeeting screen... Uh, this is the first time I ever pressed two jingles at once. See if it works. War. Autobiographies. It works. <laughs> of course, joining us today, Dan Hampton, Viper Pilot is his book. How are you doing, Dan? Just fine, thanks. Uh, Dan, let's just start off. Uh, let's tell all the folks at home a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you? Who is Dan Hampton? You mean you don't have enough in that bio in front of you to fill the square? <laughs> uh, in a nutshell, um, I was a, an Air Force fighter pilot for 20 years. I retired as a lieutenant colonel. I spent most of that time flying different versions of the F-16, predominantly as a wild weasel. Brilliant. And your new book, Viper Pilot, uh, we've, we've had a lot of fun uh, reading it. I know me personally, uh, Just uh, it gives you really a glimpse of what it's like to actually be in the cockpit uh, of an F-16 uh, Viper. Well, thanks. That was actually uh, kind of the kind of the idea. It's uh, you guys fly at all? Any of you fly? Uh, no, not actually, unless, uh, only as a passenger. Yes, yeah, always. You know what I mean, though, uh, it's it's it, it's kind of like describing you know being a race car driver or doing open heart surgery. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that unless you do it, it's really really tough to put into words. So I. I'm gratified that it made sense and didn't leave everybody with big question marks over their heads. So thanks. Absolutely. Uh, no, I'm going to start off I, I'm gonna, I, I, just because I can. I'm going to ask the first question of you. Um, you start off, and I don't want to give away too much of the book because it, it, we had a real good time. Uh, we don't want to spoil it for the listeners at home. But um, I want to talk about drones because this is one of the big topics. Sir Jimmy and I used to do a show uh, talking about the news and whatnot. We always got into the topic of drones. And... In your first sortie, right there, it says everything about what I think about drones. Because um, 
you as a pilot, and again, I don't want to spoil too much of what happened, but uh, you basically saved the life of a Turkish MiG pilot by not firing on him uh, using your human brain. (laughs) And at the same time, on your way back, the Patriot robot missile defense system starts attacking your own people. So right in your first sortie, sort of says everything I think about drones. I want to ask you, as an actual uh, fighter pilot, what do you think about this move to uh, robotic aircraft? Well, you know, I, I, surprisingly, I get asked that a lot, and I think it's much ado about nothing, to tell you the truth. Uh, at last calculation, our brains do 38 trillion calculations per second. And I think even in my pointed little head, I've got something like 3.5 terabytes of memory. And they haven't invented a supercomputer yet that has either of those capabilities. So, right. I, you know, everybody's uh, up in arms about drones simply because in the last decade they've had permissive skies to fly in and there haven't been any MiGs or SAMs, so people start getting the crazy idea that, well, they can take the place of manned fighters, uh, which is not true. And even with permissive skies, we've lost well over 100 of those things at $4 million a pop. Now, I'm not anti-drone. They do some things I don't want to do. I don't want to go orbit over some spot and take pictures for 12 hours. But then right. again, as you mentioned, I can do some things that they'll never be able to do, which is react on a battlefield, use reasoning and things like that. So I don't see where there's any competition, really. Right. As, as far as a, a, a fighting machine, because, you know, we, we see these drones flying over the war zones, but that's because someone like, you know, a wild weasel like yourself has already cleared the skies for them and cleared the SAM sites. Absolutely. There's, you know, in, a, in any kind of environment where there's anti-aircraft artillery or SAMs or MIGs, you know, they're not going to last an hour. Look what happened to that, that stray drone that ended up over Israel. How long did he stay alive? You know what I mean? As long as Israel wanted it to. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the point is, in their present form or even in any future form that I can see, you know, they're not, they're not going to be able to do anything that we can and, you know, you wouldn't get on an airliner flown by a robotic pilot, would you? I mean, I no, <laughs> no. You know, why would we trust your weapons? A, a lot of people don't want to get on those robotic trains. Like they have them in Europe where, you know, the train, <laughs> exactly. I, I wouldn't get on one. nervous going between airport terminal to airport and terminal. Mm-hmm. Hey, Dan, this is Sir Jimmy. Um, uh, the very first note that I wrote down uh, while reading it was on page 155, and I believe in the whole book it's the only mention of uh, General Wesley Clark. And um, that brings to mind something that, that is, a, a, I guess, a topic that we have brought up before, Paul and I, on another podcast, and, and something that we've talked about quite a bit. And it's been in the news for about four or five years with uh, – where he made a statement about all these different places where we were going to go in and, you know, subvert their governments and, and take these people out. And it seems like every one of these places that he named has sort of fallen, you know, in line. And we got a little clip that we really like to play and get your take on it. All right. This is from uh, 2001 general Wesley Clark. 10 days after nine 11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who used used to work for me. And one of the generals called me in. He said, "Sir, you gotta come in. You gotta come in and talk to me a second. I said, "Well, you're too busy." He said, "No, no." He says, "We've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq." This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, "We're going to war with Iraq. Why?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> 
He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They've just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later. And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk. He picked up a piece of paper. And he said, I just... He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Yeah, that was the clip, and uh, most of it's come true. Now, Dan, you, you do talk about... Uh, what? You do talk about the general in your book, and uh, I think your opinion of him is similar to our opinion of him. Yeah, so you want to know my opinion of him amplified, or, or that, what's yeah. my take on that clip? Uh, please, <laughs> it's up to you what you want to say on the show. Again, we can always put an explicit tag on if we have to. <laughs> well, um, you know, as much as I hate to agree with Wesley Clark, because I think the guy, in a word, is a brownie hound. I mean, he's, he's just a, a publicity hog. He, he was actually right to a certain degree about Iraq. Um, you know, there really wasn't any hard evidence connecting them with what had happened on 9-11 or anything like that. Be that as it may, there were other very valid strategic reasons for going to war in that particular part of the world. We all know what those are. But for Clark to talk like that is kind of funny, given his, his amplification of the whole Kosovo thing. You know, that was his one, one 15 minutes of, of spotlight fame there. And he, you know, more than anything else in the world, he wanted the theater he was in charge of, which would have been the Kosovo crisis, to be just as big and as, and as important as Desert Storm was. So he kept asking, at least on the Air Force side, for more and more squadrons, more and more sorties, because he wanted to equal the 300-a-day sortie count that we had in Desert Storm, because he wanted his little war to be as important as... as right, not for strategic reasons, so, just to, yeah. for his own personal gain. Well, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to throw that big of a spear at him, but that's the way he always came across. And, you know, for him to then go ahead and, and cast aspersions on anything that happened after Kosovo, after he made such a, you know, a cluster out of that is really kind of funny. You know, he, he, he sent in, and I talked about this in the book, he sent in, you know, an evaluation team after the war to validate the 140-something armor kills that, you know, the military had claimed from the air. And, and we could only find 12. And, in fact, the Serbs said, hey, you know, you, there, there weren't that many. What you guys hit were decoys. They were plywood mock-ups of tanks with, you know, diesel engines or even just fire pots in them. Clark didn't like that answer one bit, so, you know, he supposedly sent the guys back in and said, no, no, you will find 140, you know, tank, destroyed tank chassis out there. Um, you know, a guy who, who will do that and then obviously make such a, a bid for the political world doesn't, doesn't really get my vote. And, you know, I, I think I said it in the book what the British general said to him about starting World War III. Clark was looking for a fight and, you know, he, he wanted to have it. So then to go knock 
you know, what we did in, in Iraq or anything after that, you know, doesn't, doesn't add up in my book. As far as being right goes, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we went in to, to topple the regimes in Egypt nor Libya or Syria. Those things were all started as a result of, you know, independent Arab uprisings. So he was right in the sense that there have been incidents in all of those countries, with the exception of Iran, but to suggest that we started it, I think, is a bit far-fetched. Yeah, I mean, even if what he's saying in that clip uh, is true, that he heard this, why would he be repeating it at a TED Talk? I think it was, I think it was a TED Talk that he was uh, doing. And hey, why right. Would... He's a publicity hound, and he wants CNN to keep giving him you know, a job as a military analyst or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. There were some, there, there were some other uh, higher-ups and generals that you weren't necessarily... Uh, impressed with it, it seemed like is that sort of standard operating procedure you think for for military folks just sort of nobody likes their boss or were there some uh, particularly egregious things that that you saw from the from the higher ups well no i mean there were there were actually quite a few not quite a few but proportionately there were some very good general officers you know that i that i worked for and i mentioned i mentioned some of them and now I'm, you know, in today's Air Force, I'm actually very heartened to see, you know, that the, the current crop of, of generals, most of them, and they're, you know, these are guys that are probably 10 to 15 years older than I am, um, have survived and stayed in long enough to reach command positions like that. They're, they've got some really first-class guys running things. I think in, in the Air Force I was a part of, it was more of a generational issue. Like I said, there were some good ones, but but there were also some that were just blatant politicians, you know, and, and in my opinion, a bit self-serving. I think you're going to find that, though, in any, in any branch of the military and, in fact, in any, you know, civilian bureaucratic organization. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. So. I was going to say, in any, yeah, in, in any big organization, you're going to find people oh, like yeah. that. It's a shame that they tend to rise to the top, <laughs> or at least yeah, some of them know, do. And I, I hate to say always and never because, you know, I don't, I don't like sure. to make sweet generalizations. There's, there's always some good guys mixed in there. It just sometimes there seem to be more of the other type, you know what I mean? Um, so, and, in, you know, in my case, I, I have kind of a personal grudge against, uh, you know, the guy that commanded Kobar Towers because, you know, for the rest of my life, I'm not going to be able to take a step without my leg hurting because of what happened there. And I still blame that guy for it, like I, like I mentioned, you know. That was a compelling couple of pages. Yeah, well, you know, there were some things that needed to be said, and I figured, well, I'm a civilian now, so I can go ahead and say it. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of you being a civilian now, Dan, now, now I work as a post printer during the day. I do uh, podcasting. I mean, if I were to retire from everything now, I mean, next year, if I really wanted to, I could walk back into my post printing shop and, you know, do it for a day, or I could, you know, f fire up a microphone again and do some podcasting. Now, is there any way that you, as a retired Viper pilot, can step back into a Viper pilot and just for old time's sake uh, go on a small journey? No, no, I mean, that doesn't, you know, barring World War III where all of a sudden they need to start recalling, you know, all the retired fighter pilots to save the day, you know, like Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. Unlike days past, the qualifications and currencies and requirements to legally fly, you know, a modern uh, jet fighter are so so thick that it, you know, if a guy goes non-current, 
even while he's active duty, he's got to go through a requalification training uh, program that takes a couple of months. You know, I, I meant to start off like this, but I'm looking at my notes here, and uh, I forgot to say right at the beginning, thank you for your service. <laughs> forgot about oh, that. Okay. Thanks. Absolutely. You know, I'm, uh, everyone, everyone here is American except me. I'm the Canadian, but I still thank you for your service. <laughs> well, you know, I had an interview with a Canadian station a couple weeks ago, and, and I was, uh, you know, and honestly appreciative of the Canadians that I, I worked and flew with because to a man... Uh, they could. They were really good guys, really good pilots. Well, the only, the only reason we can argue amongst ourselves here in Canada whether we should have you know fifty jets or fifty one is because uh, the Americans, you guys uh, down south, do protect the whole continent pretty much. So we, we do understand that and appreciate it. That's okay. You make up for it with maple flag. So that's that's. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, that's a recurring topic. He's been listening. Yeah, there you go. Maple flag's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Really sorry about Celine Dion. Sorry about that. Don't, okay. t- tell me, Dan, what does zippering the mic actually entail? Uh, that just means clicking the mic a couple times. Instead of making a radio transmission, you just click the mic a couple times to answer in the affirmative. So in the place of saying yes or, you know, Wilco or something like that, you just zipper the mic. And it's important when you've got maybe 100 airplanes on the same radio frequency, you know, and, uh, and you need to acknowledge something. Like squeeze in a, a yes, squeeze in a yes without actually saying yes and just get it over with. So, so, so if you want to say no, is that not an option? <laughs> if you want to say no, then you'd have to say negative. But usually you zipper the mic and reply to a command and the guy who sent you the command just wants to know that you got it if you don't do what he tells you to do then he'll figure you didn't hear it right okay i just wanted a little more clarification that was in the book quite a bit and i wished that i had realized there was a glossary at the back that i could have read <laughs> yeah but you, you, you know trouble to make that glossary and you didn't even read the you know that's the funny oh, thing i read the whole thing after i was done uh, there's a lot the of terms glossary. i was just thinking wow there's a lot of terms and acronyms okay. in, in the story. <laughs> There's a lot of terms, Dan, that you put in the story, and I'm sure I should have referred to the glossary, which I did not. The funny thing is, when those things are happening in the cockpit, in the story, it's so fast-paced. I just keep going, you know what, I get the gist of it, and, and I moved on, and I really didn't look up what this meant or what that meant, because I wanted really to stay in the story and keep going. So I did the same thing Sir Jimmy did. I, I glanced over the glossary at the end. I didn't, you know what... If I didn't figure out what it was, a few pages later, I figured kind of out what that acronym meant or what this meant or what that meant. But, I mean, you really took us into the the cockpit with you. And, I mean, I remember you flying, I believe it was an Egyptian F-16 that, let's say, maybe wasn't as well-maintained as an American one. And I'm reading that whole chapter, (laughs) and it was so exciting. And then, you know, at the end, you're like, well, that was the worst 90 seconds of my life. I'm like, good Christ, man! That was that was 20 pages, and I was riveted the whole time. I mean, this is brilliant. And you know, from takeoff to landing for you it was a minute and a half. That's a great compliment. Thanks, I appreciate it. So, is there a huge yeah, difference? Um, what, sorry, Sir Jimmy, uh, is there a huge difference no. between the, uh, the the maintenance? Have you flown foreign uh, maintained F-16s and, and jets? And is there a huge difference between the way the Americans take care of their equipment and the others do? Well, not, not necessarily all the others, but there certainly was between an American F-16 and an Egyptian one. Uh, you know, uh, 
they they were they were trained and brought up so to speak by the Russians, the Soviet Union, and they have a different idea about maintaining people and equipment than we do. They kind of just beat them into the ground until they fall apart, and so that was kind of translated over to the Egyptians, even though they were using our stuff. And also, you know, you can't think of their maintenance as anywhere on par with ours because a lot of these guys didn't even read their own language, much less try to sort through big, thick, you know, manuals in technical English on how to maintain, you know, a, a modern fighter like that. And besides, they've ne- they've never had a fighter jet like that before. The, you know, the nearest they'd come to it was a MiG which is made out of vacuum tubes and steel tubing. So, right. <laughs> you know, they, they, they had no basis for what they were doing. So given that that only happened once to me, I, you know, I can't, I can't rat them out too hard. But uh, it was always kind of interesting when I'd fly with them to, to see, you know, what was going to happen and what emergency was I going to see today. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I came back from all of those. Well, hey, this is Sir Jimmy here. Um when it comes down to MIGs, I think that's like the plane that everybody thinks is the best plane that the rest of the world has except us, at least, you know, maybe in the 70s and 80s. I don't know how long they've been around. But when, when it comes down to it, let's say you come head to head with one and you pass each other and you both turn back towards each other. Is there any kind of, I don't know, advantage at all that a MIG would have over your plane? Not you, not that pilot, but. What, what could it do that you might have to deal with? Well, you know, people use MiG kind of interchangeably when what they really mean is a, is a Soviet-built airplane. And, and besides McCoy and the other big manufacturer was Sukhoi. And Sukhoi made something called an Su-27, which, you know, is, is an enemy fighter, so everybody calls it a MiG. So when we talk about MiGs, let's just assume we're talking about any enemy fighter, any Russian-made enemy fighter. Um, as far as, as their stuff goes, uh, you know, they really, didn't, they really didn't have any advantage in the airplane. They did some things with some of their weapons uh, that we, we had to think about as, you know, as to how to, how to counteract them. Um, they were very good with designing some weapons. Uh, their airplanes itself, though, um, really would never give one of us, and by us I mean an F-16, F-18, F-15, Raptor or anything like that wouldn't really give us too much trouble. The problem with them is there's never just one or two of them. You know, they always outnumber us 10 to 1, so they would overcome their lack of technical precision or pilot training with sheer numbers. That was their that was their game, if you follow. I do. There's a uh, there's there's a great story in the uh, in that uh, Egyptian uh, chapter, and I won't sp- spoil it all for the readers, but the 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 punchline is keep your nose up, and we'll just leave that one out. One of the highlights uh, of the book. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny, and it, you know there were lots of cases like that. You know, <laughs> we we would, you know, to try to fly anyway is a jet is is you know takes a lot of concentration. I really feel for those guys having to try to do it in another language. But then again, you know, I had to do it too, so. Yeah, that was that was kind of funny, and that's you know that's a good point that there are some funny things in this book. It's not just history or, you know, the the story of, of combat events. There is humor because there's always humor, right? Oh, there is humor. I tell you, uh, I was laying in bed with my wife, and she's reading her a book on her iPad, and all of a sudden I just start I'm I'm chuckling. I've never read a book and actually chuckled before. And she looks over and she goes, "What?" And I said, "No, no, wait, wait, wait a minute." 
And I finished reading the, the chapter and I got done and I told her what was going on. And the next chapter, I'm laughing again. I remember laughing two or three times in the book. And, you know, it was nice because it's so intense to, to give you a, a, a laugh and realize that it humanizes everything. It was I thought that was a, a really nice touch. Yeah, and, I and the bar scene from from Interlick was pretty funny. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> seems seemed to be a lot of uh, a lot of instant yeah, that, relaxation. That always makes me laugh, even though I lived through it and I've re- I've written it. You know, I still chuckle when I read it because <laughs> I can still see that guy's face and his big finger pointing right <laughs> you know, in my eyes, being a cocky young lieutenant or captain. <laughs> and it and seems have... like it, it seems like any chance you had to stick it to the French. You took that, so that's that's two thumbs up from me too on that count. Well, they always try to stick it to us, don't they? And that kind of hurts. After all we've done for them. So, ha- since you've left the uh, the service, have you ever had a friend as good as a little buddy tow decoy? <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing. You know, nobody's nobody's had to save my life, so I guess the answer would be no. Um, uh, although I, I worked as a uh, what is it? You can't say mercenary anymore. Private military contractor for a couple of years. Um, but the tow decoy, man, that thing was a lifesaver. I wish I wish we'd had it. What does it look did, like? What does it actually not. physically look like, Dan? The the decoy. I was wondering. Oh, it looks like a little looks like a little football on the end of a of a long cable. So does that does that affect the maneuverability of the plane? You know, making a turn, uh, anything at all? No, no, not at all. No, you thank don't you. even you don't even notice it. Thank you, Raytheon. Yeah, thank you, Raytheon. <laughs> so it's like this little ball of sensors right. that just trails behind you and, and gives a uh, it sort of screams a signature of an F sixteen, and that's where they hit. How far how far behind does it trail? Uh, a couple hundred feet. Hmm. Well, it's kind of you you gotta you gotta to feel that hit if if, if something it. takes it out. Yeah. Do you not? Well, if you're going at 500 knots and that thing explodes, you know, something hits it, I guess you're out of the way before you even feel that it happened. Because I, I remember you saying that you got, you know, you landed and, right, and yeah. you noticed that your last one was gone. So it's like something that happens in the <laughs> middle of it and you don't even think about it. Yeah, well, the idea of having it towed that far back is that it's well beyond the mist distance, you know, the lethal radius of any SAM that explodes. So, you know, it would have to be a lot closer than a couple hundred feet for you to feel it. Now, uh, if if you, you make ever... a digital version of this book, will you be singing the the, the Wild Weasel song for us? <laughs> the Wild Weasel song. <laughs> Actually, there there is a an ebook version of it. Okay. In fact, um, okay. there's a it's you know I'm not an ebook kind of guy. I'd rather have a, a book you know to hold and turn pages with. Me too. And they did a superb Collins <laughs> did a superb job on it. You know, it's got, um, I, I went out this summer with him. A friend of mine is the wing commander at Nellis, and he, you know, he let me borrow an airplane for an afternoon, and we, we filmed some video clips. They put all of those things in this ebook. There's a There's a cockpit, expanded cockpit picture, so you can select different things, and it'll tell you what it is. And in the text of the book, you know, like when you come to say heads-up display for the first time, it's I think it's in blue. And you can click on that, and it'll, it'll take you over to the cockpit picture and the picture of the HUD. So you could. Oh, you, you just sold another copy of your book. <laughs> I'm going to pick that I, up uh, right now. <laughs> no, it's, that sounds awesome. I'm not an ebook kind of guy, but they really, really did a good job with it. And, and the people that you know get into that sort of thing have had nothing but good things to say about it. And in fact, 
in the audio book, J.P. Pruden does sing the Wild Weasel song. So I look forward to the opportunity to finger the pickle button. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I can't believe you said that on a podcast. You're gonna... Hey, oh, it's explicit. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, yeah, you know, they, they really did a good job, and it, you know, it, I think it helps explain a lot. So you got an e-book. Uh, there's an audio book out now as well. I'm looking at it here, yeah, yeah. narrated by audio. John Pruden. Now he's the same guy that did the American Sniper book. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Great book, too. The same guy who narrates. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. He... Our, our listeners, uh, of course, many of them already have Audible accounts or iTunes accounts. and uh, But those of you who don't, this would be a great, great purchase for your first book. Of course, one of our sponsors, audible.com. And all you got to do is go to bookguys.ca slash audible. And you can actually pick up Dan's book right now for free. Don't worry, he'll still get paid. But you can get it for free just for signing up at bookguys.ca slash audible or audibletrial.com slash bookguys. And I'm going to play a little sample right now, straight off the, uh, this is unrehearsed. Here we go. Clicking the play button right off the site. Let's check it out, gentlemen. You've got to be shitting me. That's the battle cry of... There, yeah, there's the explicit tag, gentlemen. Let's keep going. The wild weasels. Surface-to-air missile, SAM or SAM killers. The first pilots sent into a war zone. Men who purposefully provoke fire from enemy missiles and anti-aircraft guns on the ground. Then hunt and kill the SAM nests, making the sky safe for all other aircraft and helicopters to follow. I was proud to be one. True, like every F-16 fighter pilot, I'd fly many other types of missions in my career, but I always came back to being a weasel. Why? It's where the action is. Sam hunting is the most dangerous mission faced by today's fighter pilots, a job more hazardous and difficult than shooting down enemy jets. With 151 combat missions, 21 hard kills on Sam sites, 11 aircraft destroyed on the ground, unfortunately, plus many tanks, trucks, artillery, strikes on high-value targets, and other assorted operations, I've been called the most lethal F-16 CJ wild weasel in the U.S. Air Force. So that's uh, from audible.com, of course. Go to bookguys.ca slash audible, and uh, you can uh, look up Viper Pilot. And there's actually a four-minute clip there you can listen, make sure it's uh, something for you. And uh, check it out. You can get it free just for try, trying them out. Professor Allen. Yeah, I had a question for you, Dan. Um, obviously, you didn't get uh, you know, uh, college education, and you're thinking about uh, architecture at one point for a career. That, that obviously has some creative you know, creativity um, you know, involved in that job. But um, where did the writing bug come from or the writing uh, skill come from, do you think? It's a very... Uh, engaging, uh, uh, a, a terrific read. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think that. And, I, you know, to, to give you an honest answer, I have no idea. Uh, you know, writing is something we all have to do going through school, you know, but there's a difference between being able to write something that people are going to want to read and then, you know, writing for grades uh, or courses. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like flying. It was just something that I was, I was always able to do. I was never able to play basketball, but I could fly an airplane and I could, you know, I, I could write. So I, you know, I, I think it's just something that you're you're born with one way or another that you can develop if you're lucky. Man, I was fortunate enough to do that. 
And uh, it's definitely well written. Uh, I'm looking forward. You were saying before the show you have a fiction book coming out. Is there is that anything you can talk about right now, or are you keeping it under your helmet? Yeah, um, I uh, I actually have a contract for two fictional stories. Uh, the first one, like I said, comes out in in March, I think, and it's called The Mercenary. And you can figure out from there kind of what it's about. I'll tell you that it's got, you know, it's got the makings of a really good book. It's got flying in it, some combat, uh, revenge, sex, you know, hate, that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's a good book. Uh, I, I don't really like my own stuff most of the time, but I enjoyed another nonfiction piece that is due out some, it's due to the publisher sometime next year. I can't really go into much detail about it. It'll come out early in 2014. Well, you have my email address. Please let us know beforehand. We're waiting. I, I will, and you know, I'm I'm really glad that that y'all seem to enjoy the the writing because, uh, to be honest, I I enjoy doing it a lot more than I thought I would. It, you know, it was kind of uh, therapeutic. This book was, but the other ones, sure. And I'm really I'm really mm-hmm. enjoying doing it, and I I seem to be getting a, a bit of a following. So that's good. I hope they like everything else I put out. I, I do want to make one note to our listeners. Uh, you make it clear in the book that. I mean, uh, especially the combat scenes, you're not just relying on the, you know, the foggy memory of war. You do, you did, you, you claim that you did consult back to your logs, which are, I'm assuming, are second to second. So these are pretty accurate times and uh, descriptions of what actually happened on those days. Am I correct? Yeah, you know, some of those things, you know, like any traumatic event in anybody's life, you're never going to forget the details. Um, where I had questions, I, I did go back. I kept uh, logs, uh, journals in both wars, and I I also kept all my flying, you know, mission data cards that we take on each flight that have the call signs, targets, locations, that sort of thing. And then uh, in the second war, at least, I kept the intelligence summaries that are written up at the end of every mission with all the results and, you know, again, call signs, times, and locations. So where I, I wasn't sure, you know, in my memory, I had those things to consult and, uh, and got it all right. I also talked to some buddies that I flew with, you know, and, and uh, made sure that I was remembering it right and the paper backed up, you know, what I'd written. So, yeah, it's, it's an accurate book. Brilliant. Now, now Dan, uh, Sir Jimmy has his son, uh, we call him Nobot, on the show. And I'm wondering if, uh, I forget how old, I feel like Nobot, are you, you're 10 or 11? 12? Brilliant. Yeah. Do you have a question for uh, jet fighter pilot Dan Hampton? Maybe you want to ask something about flying a jet? Sure. He plays a lot of Modern Warfare 3. Maybe he can think up something. <laughs> sorry, sorry for putting you on the spot sorry, there, Nobot. Nobot. Um, about how fast have you gone? Okay. Uh, I've gone a little bit over twice the speed of sound, so... I think it was Mach 2.01 or something like that. It was on a on a test flight, so that equates to something in the neighborhood of 1,500 miles an hour. Hey, Sir Jimmy, that's a lot faster than your NASCAR, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad the school bus didn't get him home that fast. Yeah. <laughs> there's a uh, uh, Dan. There's a picture in the book, and I think you mentioned it somewhere about uh, liking uh, some. Uh, Porsches and fast cars. Do you think that's just uh, your way to get that need for speed in uh, in retirement? No, no. I actually had one when I was when I was active duty. I think you know. To be honest, I besides just having a cool car, which most fighter pilots like to have, <laughs> I, I think it was a way to kind of bridge the gap between flying a fighter and being at home sitting at my kitchen table, because 
that's something that I and a lot of other guys, you know, tend to have some issues with once in a while. Is you know, you go from thinking that fast to not. You right. Know, and I think we're very <laughs> irritating to be around. In right. A lot of sure. Cases. You know, we, we we're not used. You know, we're just we're used to being keyed up all day. So the the fast car was a way to kind of defrag ourselves on the way home. At least it was for me. It was a Corvette, wasn't it? Never. It was a Porsche. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Uh, did you have like? No, a... I actually had a stingray when I was a, a lieutenant, and uh, I only had a stingray because I didn't own anything else, so I had nothing else to put in there. The but, uh, the stingray was in the book, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I, I went to Germany on my first tour and had to leave the car here, and then I got kind of hooked on Porsches. Excellent. Now, Dan, I gotta say, you, uh, I went into this thinking that uh, the speeds were so incredibly fast that there's no way. I always thought of a jet fighter, modern jet fighter pilot, uh, despite Hollywood's uh, you know depiction, as basically a babysitter of technology. That, that's what I went into this thinking that it's so fast. And then I'm reading your book and seeing how you're turning the plane upside down so you can visually sight something and all the things you're doing in the cockpit. And I, I really learned what the jet fighter pilot is actually doing. And you are actually flying the plane. You are actually, what's being done is being done by you, not by the technology. It's brilliant. I really enjoyed, uh, I think it's a consensus, the three of us really enjoyed Viper Pilot. A great glimpse into the, you know, the air combat, uh, flying uh, warfighter like yourself, uh, who who wrote it, I mean, brilliantly. And I I really am looking forward to your uh, your new book, The Mercenary, now, and and seeing what you're going to do in the fiction field. And I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, hopefully next time you come on, we want to have you back on. You will sing the Wild Weasel song live. Maybe bring bring a friend or two. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much of a voice, so I definitely have to bring a friend. But yeah, okay, you have me back on. I'll sing the Wild Weasel song for you. <laughs> we can auto tune it. That's thanks not a problem. The, uh, thanks for the kind word about the book. I appreciate it. Thanks. So, uh, gentlemen, we're going to get into book news. But uh, thank you so much, Dan. Viper Pilot is the book. It is out now. A memoir of air combat by Dan Hampton. Thanks for joining us, Dan. And we're going to have you back on soon uh, to talk about the mercenary. You're welcome anytime you want on the show, uh, but you do have to sing the Wild Weasel song. <laughs> My pleasure, and thanks again. Thank you, Dan. Hey, and Sir Jimmy, before we go, I know you have uh, some news from us from our iTunes reviews in the States. I know in Canada where you have uh, pretty much a five-star review. We have a pretty good reviews over in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I rarely switch my iTunes over to international sites. So uh, let us know. We have a new uh, new review on iTunes. Yeah, we've got a five-star review as uh, our cumulative total here on iTunes. And I was just looking, as I regularly do. And here just on October 11th, we had a new review from Rose Caraway. And she gave us five stars. Yes. She has made it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the check is in the mail. Uh, she had some interesting things today. She said, I'll just read it. I was just recently introduced to the show from a friend, good friend, and from the very first episode, I was hooked. These guys are intelligent, yet down to earth, and they have some really thought-provoking things to say about books, the writers who wrote them, and the stories within them. My favorite episode so far is The Death of Johnny Ace, mm, good episode. which has a really great segment. Yeah. Good episode. Has a really great segment on banned books and why it's dumb and a backwards idea. She loved it. But. There's a button, our five-star review. There's a but. She was generous. 
if I had if I had one critique, which maybe she doesn't have one. But if she had one, it would be that there are no women on the show. Oh, hang on, That's my Rose, Rose, Rose. It does what it says on the tin. It's book guys show. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be. Which is still coming up. We're still trying to get a group of girls to do the show, females. But yeah, she's right. We should have uh, ladies more often on the show. Yeah, she said, or at least not on the several shows she's heard so far. Uh, she would understand. I understand there are more women who read books than men. Seems like it would be a good move to have a woman's perspective, in my humble opinion. Yes, you could still call it book, guys. Keep up the great work. I'll be listening. Rose Caraway. Thank you very much, Rose. We appreciate the feedback and hope you are listening this week. Yeah, hey, thanks, Rose. You know, we have had women on the show before. Uh, the only uh, show title that comes to mind is, of course, Sword and Laser when we had Veronica and Tom on. But we will have more ladies on the show. And in our earlier episodes, of course, uh, we had uh, many female authors and on. And you're right, Rose. It just seems that uh, uh, we tend to focus on being the book guys. And, and for exactly the same reason that you said, which is more women than men read. And uh, we're trying to make reading cool again so to have more men uh, reading. Uh, but yeah, you're right. We should have a female voice on uh, each and every episode. And you know what? We will endeavor to uh, satisfy your needs, Rose. Thank you so much for the five-star review. And, uh, Sir Jimmy, I'd like to ask everybody at home, get in the iTunes, pop it up on your computer, your laptop, your PC, your Mac, and uh, search in the iTunes store for Book Guys Show, and then you will see at the bottom there's a, a section with reviews. Give us a review. It, it doesn't have to be five stars. It can be one star or three stars or four stars. But give us a review. We'd like to see that uh, number go up. And, of course, the more reviews we get, the, 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 the more you know iTunes and Apple will feature our podcast we were new and notable and every once in a while we pop up in the literature section but your reviews do help us build uh, more of an audience yeah and if you can't remember book guys just search for sword and laser and we'll be right there <laughs> do we, we yeah we come up on the yeah seo my friend yes, seo did. gotta love it <laughs> so we're gonna go to the yeah. break sir jimmy and we'll be right back uh with some book news this is richard goodship author of the camera guy on amazon and you're listening to the book guys hi this is colin ferguson i play sheriff jack carter on eureka and you're listening to the book guys and we're back from a short break and of course we were talking to dan uh, as he was leaving and uh, sir jimmy it's very nice of you what you're gonna do for him making that hollow book tell tell folks about free hollow books and what you're doing for dan well, Dan, we, we asked him, he said, you know, what would you think? Do you, do you carry a weapon or anything that you might like to tote around inside of a hollow book? And he was like, what's a hollow book? And I said, well, freehollowbooks.com. I take any book and glue the pages together, cut a hole out inside and re-glue it. Like, looks like a regular book that you can tote anything you want around anywhere in total secrecy. And, uh, he said, well, he's totally licensed to carry his gun anytime he wants to. So he had some other little item that he wanted to hide inside of it. I don't know if we should say what it is. <laughs> but uh, let's just say I'm going to hollow out a copy of Viper Pilot for it and send it out to him as a thanks for coming on the show. He's a terrific guest. And, uh, you know, for the service to the country, at the very least, he deserves that. And I look forward to having him back on just to hear the, the wild uh, weasel song. 
I wanted to ask him what's an afterburner. What's you know what's you know I got this lady that I'm calling bitching Betty now because of reading this book. <laughs> it's like, you know, so, so many good little quotes you can pull out of the book and use in everyday life. Yeah, definitely a fun book. And uh, Professor Allen, while we're at it, I'm going to let everybody know that they can uh, check out all our stuff at bookguys.ca. I know you, Professor Allen, post a, a lot of stuff. Sir Jimmy once in a while post stuff there. Uh, we we talk about we do reviews we do a little uh, one liner sometimes when we find some interesting news we repost on the site it's kind of like a, a drudge report for books without the you know right wing leaning thing where we lean down the middle but uh, Professor Allen, why don't you tell folks about your blog as well because uh, I enjoy a lot of your posts that are actually reposts from your blog yep. tell folks of where they can find your yep, stuff a lot, lot, yep, a lot of my blogs I, a lot of my posts I put on I put on the book guys I'm at uh, it's Allen's eyes and ears I talk about books and podcasts comic books of course and i even came up with that concept before the book guys did so this was a perfect fit and uh, it's uh, eyes and ears blog.blogspot.com try to post every couple days a couple times a week you know and just because the padre is not here doesn't mean he can't get his plug in of course padre uh robert father robert <laughs> balasur the jesuit digital jesuit uh he is a, an actual priest and uh, he does host on the This Week in Tech Network, the Twit Network. He does host This Week in Enterprise Technology. Check that out. T-W-I-E-T, Twyet. Uh, Tom Merritt was going to join us today, but uh, today, because we had to reschedule today, uh, he's in the middle, I think, right now. He's recording frame rate. And if I wasn't doing the show right now, I'd be watching the live stream at twit.tv. Frame rate, great show about uh, online digital video. Brilliant show. Uh, he also does a, a, quite a few other shows on the Twit Network. Just saying. So, just to clarify, Father, father Robert is a father. Yes, is a, is a is a priest. Professor Allen is a professor. Yeah, Sir Jimmy Paul, is a sir. The book guy is is a Paul, and Sir Jimmy <laughs> has been knighted. That's right. That's true. And technically, I am also Paul Sir well. Sir Paul, uh, knighted, of course, by Adam Curry and John C. Devore. Not to be not can be confused with the Beatles. <laughs> That's right. Not not that Sir Paul. Ah, the Queen knighting <laughs> Adam Curry, my friend, and John C. Dvorak. Okay, so we have a lot of book news because today uh, we had some new stuff come out technology-wise. Book news. Technology. So uh, I accidentally bumped my Apple TV remote today here at work in the shop. And the home screen for the Apple TV came up and there was a new button on the screen that said Apple Events. So I clicked on it. See, what, what is this new button on my screen? And it said, event live oh in God, two I hours. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. So, We're sitting here recording the show, and I, I should be online <laughs> ordering a new thingamajig from, from Apple, whatever it is. I'll pay the money. Just take right. my money. Shut up. <laughs> Just send it. Just send it. So, of course, big news today oh from Apple. Gosh. We watched it live. And, uh, you know, of course, they start off bragging, of course, how many, you know, millions, 200 million iOS devices, 35 billion app downloads and all the, the thing they usually do. You know, uh, interesting, 1.5 million books are in the iBook store now, so their their catalog is expanding as far as books. Uh, they've also had 400 million book downloads so far through the, uh, the iBooks store. Uh, they've just uh, updated the iBooks app. Uh, now, I'm, I'm checking. I've been checking. Uh, it's not live yet. They said today, uh, but so far I don't see the update. So they are updating the iBooks app, adding it, some really cool uh, features. Let me just turn down my noise limiter. There we go. Uh, so they've added a, f a few new features. Uh, one is better iCloud integration. So the bookmarking now seamlessly within a second, 
goes from device to device, from your um, you know iPad to your other iPad to your iPhone. So uh, wherever you leave off the book, it, it continues. E- even more important, sharing quotes from books with friends. So you can highlight a section of a book, uh, click one button, and you can email that to your friend and say, check this out. How cool is this? Or you can Twitter it out and whatever. And I think the the bigger announcement for iBooks is that uh, there are now 40 new language translations happening uh, through their service. So uh, if you have a book in the iBook store, your, your book is now being translated to 40 new languages, and including Chinese, Japanese symbols. So opening up a big market for them as far as Chinese and Japanese. Big and market the in China. Thing for me as a reader is that that increases the number of languages I can read to one. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That is the magic of Apple. Now, other than the non-book-related hey, stuff. Question. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I have, a, I have a question because I have no idea. I feel like I'm in a vacuum. Can, does this stuff work on your new iPad mini? Yes, it does. That was the big news, of course. Uh, actually, I think the bigger news today was that they updated the iPad six months after it was released. So you had all these companies. Okay, I'm missing all this. Oh, yes. Tell me, tell me. Good <laughs> sake. I can't believe I don't know this crap. So, so Sir Jimmy. Why are you not standing in line, Sir Jimmy? <laughs> it's, it, well, it's only been six months since the iPad 3 came out. Uh, and, you know, we got all these companies trying to keep up with the iPad 3. And then six months later, they come out with the iPad 4. That's twice as fast. Or it's Apple looking at their customers and saying... What now can we sell these suckers? We'll buy anything. Well, I think actually what Apple is doing with updating it six months later is uh, they don't like discounting their product, which puts a kind of a negative spin on the fact that they're, you know, lowering the price. It's not worth it that much anymore. We're going to get we're flogging a discount. So they, they never do that. They've never done that in their new era of, you know, dominance. But what they have done is quickly released a, a fourth one and then said, well, you know what? Now the iPad 3 is $100 less. So technically they haven't discounted their product. What they've done is brought out one twice as fast and said, well, if you wanted the one that was there yesterday, it's now $100 off. Um, All right. Is it 128 gigs? I believe they do have a, a 128 gig flavor on the new iPad. I could be wrong on that, but I believe they do. It's, I think it okay, starts... Uh, the, the iPad mini, of course, being a small uh, thing, it starts at 329 so right now you're looking at uh, you know competing with a Kindle Fire at two ninety nine, so for thirty more dollars, uh, if you already have an iPhone or you already have a Mac, or you know or you're already using iTunes, uh, for th- that thirty extra dollars is not going to stop you from you know getting a device that works with your current ecosystem as far as apps and uh, you know digital media, movies, music. Uh, if you already have an iPod, like you know like eight hundred million people already do, this entices you to pick the iPad over the Kindle Fire. And I've played with the Kindle Fire. Believe me, you, you want the iPad branded uh, tablet for $30 more. Uh, your Netflix won't stutter. So, so this is, this is, where, we're, this is where, where we put in the, the drop. I tried to leave, but they keep pulling me back they in. Keep they keep pulling, pulling us me back, back in. in. <laughs> so they've sold 100 million iPads. It's still the uh, most successful tablet of all time. Uh, two and a half years later, since its uh, introduction. Uh, also, this 329 price point works with their textbooks, which they're really flogging, apparently now in 2,500 classrooms across the United States. Uh, this also lowers the price point for a student going to school. Now, you got to think, uh, like especially college, Professor Allen, 
we're talking some of these textbooks, hundred and some odd dollars. And it's still Absolutely. easier and cheaper today for you to take your textbook to the library, photocopy it, as many people do. <laughs> it's still cheaper to do that than, you know, pirate, uh, you know, a digital textbook. So that, that kind of does bring the price point down. Uh, $329 for Wi-Fi. I don't know how much the cellular costs. It's a 7.9-inch uh, screen. Same resolution as the uh, the current or the iPad uh, 4, iPad 3 and 4. And it's uh, 0.68 pounds. It looks really tiny. So I think it's going to be huge. Uh, coming out, I believe, in November. Or not, it's not available today. But coming out in November, I think that's going to be a huge deal. Of course, they also updated uh, iBooks Author which I've been playing with. I actually do have a book I'm going to be releasing on iBooks Author. Uh, they've added embedded fonts, new templates, more widgets, and uh, I think the killer feature here is the ability to update books. So I can put out my book now next week, and it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, I, I can always add a, the General Wesley Clark clip later, or I can add a video I find later into the book, and it'll just come up on your device as an update, free update for your you know people who have bought your book already, and this is brilliant for textbooks. You know, you can have a paid upgrade or you can have a, just a free upgrade. So if you bought the textbook and all of a sudden they, they figure out, oh, the world is not, oh, it's round. Then they can, you know, change it. If Pluto all of a sudden, for example, be, becomes not a planet, they can update that one click, updates your textbook, updates your math book, your, your chemistry. They also added the ability to put in complex mathematical equations into the book uh, through the through the system, so you don't have to uh, input these mathematical equations as images. You can now put in complex, uh, you know, algebra and geometry and all the, the crazy stuff that I, you know what I failed grade ten math like ten times. All right, so I don't know what these things are about, but apparently now you can just type them in and it'll display them properly, so that someone unlike me will understand it. More importantly. Do you expect Sir Jimmy and Father Robert and I to interview you when you release your new book? Uh, no. Is that, I'm, is that part of the deal? I almost want to release it under a pseudonym because it's kind of a conflict of interest. I'm just going to put it out there and see what happens. How about that? I, I don't think it'd be right. I don't think it'd be right for me to come on the book show and you know promote my own stuff. You know, I would. I would suggest something like maybe Steve King, Jim <laughs> Patterson. <laughs> Jack Rowling, just something, you know. I hear you. Yeah, definitely. All right, I was little, I'm thinking Max Power. I was a confused. <laughs> I thought you were saying, Paul, they came out with a new iPad, like uh, a new full-size one. They did. That nobody was yeah. expecting. Yeah, iPad 4 is out, yes. Six months later. Where's it at? The one you have, Sir Jimmy, is $100 off right now across the board. Mine's cheaper than that. I got an iPad 2. I'm, I'm a poor uh, fellow here. I have an iPad 1. It weighs six pounds, and I carry it to school every day, five miles, and I like it. I have an iPod Zero. iPad Zero. <laughs> hey. Don't get fished in, Professor Allen. Once you figure out all these things work together, that's how they fish you in. I know. I'm, 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 I'm trying to keep the wall up. Uh, even even Irish Kevin that works here at, at uh, Sterling, you know, he, he was, you know, he's got an iPod, but he's like totally anti-Apple. And then he's like, wait, I can put music on the shop just right wirelessly from my iPod? I'm like, yeah. He's like, this is cool. <laughs> so he's, you know, he was kicking the David Bowie all day today. We could be heroes, my friend. We could be heroes. Other book news. Audible. Check this out. 
bookguys.ca slash audible. Love it or return it. How about this for an audiobook seller? Exchange any book you don't like, no questions asked. You start listening to that audiobook and you go, this is shite. I can say it now because we're explicit thanks to you know the audible clip from Dan's book. But if you say this is crap, <laughs> uh, they will take it back, credit your account, and you can exchange it for another book. How about that? How cool is that? Hey, I've had those books. You know, I'm you know, a half an hour in on the audiobook, and I go, gee, why did I buy this? Yeah. Kind of neat. Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> I enjoyed Atlas Shrugged. I don't... Oh, gosh. Was it 40, 42 hours? Or 42 something? hours of Scott Brick, my friend. 42 hours of Scott Brick. Well, <laughs> that, that's a pleasure. I've got to tell you, maybe it's my OCD, but once I start a book, I can't put it down. I well, can't, that, that was I me can't and Atlas Shrugged. Books. I was thinking like Sir Jimmy. I was like seven hours in. I go, well, I bought it. Ah, seven hours in. You know, 20 hours in, I liked it. <laughs> oh, okay. So you, you, you saying, Professor Allen, you've never lemmed a book? I have never lemmed a book. And I, I even, you know, I even uh, 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 am, am cautious about starting a new series because I got a feeling I'm going to be in yeah. almost whether I like it or not. It's it's not good. Well, just so you know, I, I've finished the second book in the Daniel Suarez Demon Trilogy, and I'm wondering whether I'm even interested in going for the third because I feel like he's just going to screw me at the end, and, and there's a fourth book. <laughs> Another cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. The cliffhangers do get you. You know, we, 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 uh, early on the show, when uh, Chris and Greg were on the show, uh, we called it Pulling the Parachute, and it is hard to pull the parachute, you know, especially... You've devoted two hours to a book, and you're like, oh, now the book sucks, but I really want to find out how it ends. Uh, I can't just leave it alone, you know? It's kind of the uh, same thing when yeah, I'm watching you Netflix. To... You know, like, I, I'll go back and I'll find this show I never heard of, and I'll, I'll watch the whole season, and it really pisses me off to find out that it was canceled after the first season, and I'm never going to find out what happened to these characters. Oh, they have this new thing, Paul, Wikipedia. Um, no, IMDb. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, just these out. Well, it's almost like the way Lost ended. That was bollocks. <laughs> I didn't get sucked into that. Uh, Newsweek, the weekly news magazine, 80 years old. The print edition, December 31st, will be the last print edition. They are going all digital. We'll cease all print publishing at the end of the year. Uh, this is kind of huge. You know, um, not many print publications have gone to digital in the right way, which I think is go digital, take your advertisers with you, mirror the advertising in the print edition with the digital, keep going forward, and eventually the advertisers will get used to being on your website or on your digital version, and you'll still make the same money from your advertisers as you did before. And a lot of people are going paywall, and I think Newsweek is going paywall as well. Uh, bye, Newsweek. Been nice to know you. Same with the Globe and Mail here you in Canada. Think? Their, their online presence is now going paywall. Nice to know you, Globe and Mail. Hello, emergency broadcast system. Rebooting soon. And that'll be free to download, my friend. All advertisers welcome. <laughs> Stay there tuned. Is, there is no way that they will match their advertising. You can't. <laughs> online, you, you can't do it. You I'll can't. tell you one thing. I... I, I the emergency I, I broadcast them, system, maybe, our print our it. print advertising income will equal our online advertising income. That's a big exactly. goose egg, baby. <laughs> the first episode. 
I do not give uh, Newsweek much uh, much of a chance for long term survival. Paywall no, or no. not? Because I was just at the dentist yesterday, and they had like a Newsweek out there. It was from 1988, so I, I really don't think that anybody's going to notice for another 15 years. <laughs> now, my my problem, I, I hate to get to emergency broadcast system here, but my problem with uh, new, something like Newsweek, which has an iPad app, and you can buy you know in-app purchases for each issue. My my thing is, I can get the same news online from other sources, and they're not as compromised as some of, some of the mainstream media are. They're not as guided by, you know, ulterior motives. You know, I, I can go to Dredge Report and, and find, you know, a ton of links to other news sources with, with actual reporters. People who actually go out in the field and get information and, you know, present it regardless of their agenda. They put out the information. Whereas something like Newsweek, which is, uh, you know, so many of these guys that are so compromised that, you know, there's a guy at the top who says, today we talk about this and this is our view on it. And every reporter has to fall in line. I'm not paying five dollars for a digital version of that. There are other Those things are online. Actors. That yeah. Mm, just saying. I almost feel like uh, throwing the pencil behind me and saying, "And that's the news. That is the news." Gentlemen, it's been a lot of fun talking to Dan and lots of stuff going on. Maybe we have to get one of these iPad minis in our hands. Apple, if you're listening. I will gladly give out all our uh, mailing addresses. We're waiting for a review copy. We'll check it out, see how you can read on it. And uh, oh, I've got some very nice things to say about it. Very nice. That's right. Very nice things to say about it. <laughs> I do have an end of show clip. I found this online uh, <laughs> just for fun. After the credits roll and all that, uh, Ray Bradbury in 1955 uh, made a guest appearance on uh, Groucho Mark- Marx's, uh, what was the show he was on? I had a note here. This is your life? No, not this is your life. You bet Groucho your life. Marx. You bet your life. Groucho Marx famously, Groucho Marx famously said, "I would never be a member of any club that would have me as a member." That's right. <laughs> it is you bet your life. 1955. A young writer named Ray Bradbury uh, goes uh, a battle of wits with uh, Groucho Marx, and it's a lot of fun. And we'll play that after the uh, after the end credits here, gentlemen. It's a lot of fun talking to Dan Hampton. Professor Allen, Sir Jimmy. We'll be back next week. Good to be here. That was a good show. Good interview. Yeah, great book. Check it out, folks. Viper Pilot, Dan Hampton. That was a lot of fun. And we are going to come back again next week with more books, audio books, audio dramas. And hey, we got to do some podcasts soon. We got to talk about some of you know, maybe frame rate. Next week, we'll talk about that. Uh, emergency, emergency broadcast system. Emergency broadcast system rebooting soon. See you next week, folks. I think we've talked about that one enough already. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Paul the Book Guy will be back next week. Same book time, same book channel. Ray Bradbury? Yes, sir. Where are you, where are you from, Ray? Uh, Waukegan, Illinois. Waukegan, uh, how yeah. long ago? 35 years. 35. Well, Jack Benny was born in Waukegan about that time. Yeah. Did you happen to know Jack? No, no, I, I don't, I don't uh, know him, but my mother went to school with Jack. <laughs> Why, that dirty crook. Huh? <laughs> what kind of a job do you have, Ray? I'm a writer. What kind of a writer? Pony Express, a motorcycle, or what? Writer. W-R-I-T-E-R. Oh, it's very refreshing, a writer who can spell. 
certainly can't be much of a writer. What, what have you written besides notes to the milkman? Uh, well, a number of books. Uh, one called Fahrenheit 451, one called The Martian Chronicles, uh, another called The Golden Apples of the Sun, all from Doubleday. A lot of short stories for the New Yorker, the Post, Collier's, magazines of that sort. Well, you're a real successful writer, huh? Well, have you done any other writing besides science fiction and short stories? Yes, I've done one screenplay, the screenplay of Moby Dick for John Huston. Oh, really? Well, that was a whale of a job, wasn't it, huh? <laughs> Are you married, Ray? Yes, I am. Well, you're a very interesting couple, and I'd like to spend more time talking to you, but we've got to get down to some serious business. You're going to play You Bet Your Life. Now, you selected movie quiz. I'll give you a brief synopsis of some famous movies, and you give me the title of the pictures. Now, remember, one answer. What do you want to start with? Seventy. 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 All right. Tom Ewell played opposite Marilyn Monroe in the movie version of a big Broadway success. What picture was it? Seven Year Itch. Seven Year Itch. That's Seven Year Itch is right. Well, you're off to a good start. You have $170. Did you see that picture, Ray? Yes. Mm -hmm. What do you want to try now? 80. 80. Mm -hmm. 80. Yes, that'd be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, in 1943, Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman starred in the movie version of a novel by Ernest Hemingway. What picture was this? Bell uh, for whom the bell tolls? Letitia, you hit her right on the button, huh? That's right. <laughs> and you now have $250. And now what? 90. 90? Robert Donat's performance in the screen version of a James Hilton novel won him an Oscar in 1939. What picture was it? Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. That's right. It was about a poker game. Goodbye, Mr. <laughs> Chips. <laughs> you now have $340. And here's your last chance to beat the other people, a couple victims. Mm. What even, 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 even? $100. In 1949... Olivia de Havilland played a rich young woman who was disillusioned by a handsome fortune hunter played by Montgomery Cliff. What picture was it? Talk it over. The name of the picture. Uh-oh. It was the heiress. Ah, uh, yes. Henry James. Henry James is right. Uh, Not Harry you. James, but Henry James. <laughs> You wind up with half of the 340, you have $170. Sorry you lost the last one. 